The Right to Publicity, a Manifesto. You are publicized. There are estimated to be more than 240 million surveillance cameras installed worldwide. Materials released by Edward Snowden beginning in 2013 revealed the global scale of state surveillance. The hacks of Sony in 2014 and Ashley Madison in 2015 demonstrated the fragility of corporate databases. Personal information is freely disseminated through social media networks. Privacy is a remnant of the cultural imagination. The facts no longer bear it out. If we are to reimagine our reality, we must find a way to reclaim ourselves. Reclamation is impossible as individuals. It must be done as a public community. 1. In the face of state and corporate interests, we must claim our right to publicity. Publicity, not privacy, must be a human right. All right. Welcome All right. to the Blackstone Review Podcast. I'm Sean here with Eric again. Thank as you. As always. Thank you. Good to be contributor here. to the second issue, Bill Hutchinson. Hello. How are you? Thank <laughs> you for uh, having me. The right to publicity, a manifesto. Yeah. That's it. That's mine. Glad you're here. Thanks. So I guess we'll kick it off by asking the first question, which is why the manifesto form? It's a great question. I think I was struggling a lot with... Uh, with how to how to write what I was thinking of as a thought experiment that I might put into uh, a dissertation and it didn't seem like it was something that was going to work in that form so I wanted to try it in another form uh, I think another version of this could have been in a science fiction story but I also think that there's something that I wanted to try beyond making it allegorical to try and test the weaknesses in some of the thoughts that I was having by making this demand for these thoughts, which I think makes testing, poking at it and prodding at uh, the ideas a little, it has the same urgency if somebody is, is demanding in this manifesto form. So I had done some work with a previous guest of yours, Hilary Strang, on manifestos, and I just happened to have a big file folder full of them in my computer. Mm. And so I was flipping through them and there's not one in particular that it's based on, but that, yeah, that it, I wanted it to have something of, of that urgent notion um, to try and also to try and make some sense of why these thoughts seemed important to be having and what the, what the conceptual framework behind a thought like this really was. What kind of, I want to, I, I, felt like being provocative, but I didn't know what I was trying to provoke. 2. The contemporary individual is inescapably caught up in a history and trajectory of exploitation. Liberal individualism has become neoliberal capitalism. Each person is under social obligation to optimize themselves. Do your best. Can you give some like background, like intellectual background on what brought you to make the claim that publicity should be the human right of the 21st century rather than privacy? Yeah, so I would, uh, first I would guess I would poke back at your question and say the human right. So I don't know that the the manifesto would say that it, the human right. I think it would say it would be a human right. Yeah. Um, and do I think it would replace privacy, which is not, but not exactly what you asked. I was thinking about it before we sat down to record uh, on my way to... Blackstone Review Studios <laughs> and I wondered if I if I thought that if I thought that one should be able to choose if say that there were a 
couple of tick boxes when you've got your human rights uh, card that we all sign that guarantees each other to both have and deliver on human rights that if you could choose one or the other if I would if you could choose privacy or publicity and I don't I, I, I I'm not sure if I I still think that in this kind of thought experiment suggesting that everybody has publicity is still the one I would stand behind I think it's a horror show like the notion of like every even if my private thoughts were not available, if every sort of like private action that I did that could be monitored were made public, uh, that seems horrifying. But I still think that there's a way in which we sort of live in this constant fear of being discovered for who we are that keeps us from being full integrated human beings that I think that I think there's something to that that I, I still feel really strongly about. Three, there can be no community, says individualism. There is only the self. The self-maximized individual cannot operate in conjunction with an active notion of community. Capital accumulation is the measure of the man. Collectivities find no purchase here. You mentioned Edward Snowden in the, in the kind of preface to the manifesto. Um, did you feel like something about the Edward Snowden revelations felt revelatory? Here, I think, is uh, it was kind of a petulant annoyance that provoked this. So I think that I think a lot about what it is to be a good liberal, and I mean that both with and without scare quotes. So if I understand myself to have a liberal sensibility, then what are the sort of like, I just, I can't abide zealotry. So the notion of just adopting a platform and having that be the things you think is seems really terrible. And I find that that privacy is one of these, with scare quotes, good liberal things that sort of everybody wants, but nobody understands or I think has thought about why they want it. And at the same time, there is attached to this uh, a real sort of insane hypocrisy about the way that we practice our lives in terms of privacy and being thoughtful and controlling the information that we have that that exists about ourselves and how it goes into the world so i think i think that i think i'm annoyed that that we're still having this conversation about preserving privacy when in fact i think that's a, that is so there are these different tones uh, i think throughout the manifesto that I, I until going through it recently, I didn't even realize I was taking. So there are certain analytic tones, but then there are also certain satirical tones that I think are influenced by Jonathan Swift and and uh, the way he, I think, approached things, but also some things that I genuinely feel. And this is one of those that I genuinely feel that it, it, we talk a bunch of nonsense about wanting privacy when in fact our actions or the way that we actually live make that not true. And it's one of these uh, unexamined, good liberal notions that I feel like I want to aggressively poke at in myself and maybe as a secondary quality of that in other people. So you also asked about sort of the intellectual background. There yeah. are There's an anthropologist uh, called Susan Lepselter who writes a lot about uh, UFO culture, especially people who think that they have been abducted by UFOs. And one of the things that she talks about or she theorizes about is this wanting to be known by something. So it's a way of reincorporating a, a god that is harder to believe in for some people than aliens that would come that really care about you and like want to know who you are and pick you up out of 
obscurity and or mental illness and and uh, discover who you are uh, from on high. So I think there is in my, some of my thinking, what if surveillance replaces the UFO or replaces God who, you know, every hair on your head is counted and uh, you're worth hundreds of sparrows. Uh, there is that strong impulse, I think, that that we want to be connected. And surveillance, of course, is the thing that lets you puncture through all the, the, the walls that you build up around your identity of people this close can see this much and people at this much distance can see this much and so on and so forth. Four, the insistence on the individual is demanded by capital and acceded to by the state, but only conditionally. The individual is given license to operate only so long as they consent to perpetual surveillance. How do you think the notion of publicity complicates um, intimacy, intimacy? I think a, a central aspect of intimacy that people have um, access to your bodiness and the way in which you you live your life that other people don't, right? So how would a notion of a publicity society or state, I'm reaching for a kind of a pro appropriate term, complicate the notion of uh, kind of an, an intimacy, intimacy between individuals? Yeah, yeah. Let me think about this for a little second. So I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna maybe give you two answers, one a kind of distant answer and one a closer answer. So the distant answer is in some of the the research that I do for my own uh, academic work as a PhD student is has been looking at scene, different scenes in films where they where some kind of surveillance technology mediates a relationship between people in a way that that in fact creates a greater a greater scene of intimacy and there's one in particular that I, I think about this all the time because it's such a striking scene so there's a a uh, Swedish movie called Force Majeure, which I think came out in 2014, maybe. And this family is is set into crisis. They're at a ski resort. There's a uh, an avalanche, and the father runs away from the family because their lives are imperiled. And so, there's it. The the film hinges on this one little moment where he he uh, uh, abandons his family and leaves them to die, even though everybody's actually fine. So they're in a very intense conversation in the ski lodge, and and the father won't admit that this is what happened. And there are these two strange little technologically mediated moments. One is that somebody's iPhone was on, and this is caught on camera, and we can verify the facts of what actually happened. This isn't a matter of perspectives. He tries to make a perspectival argument, but, but she's saying, like, no, look, it's right here. But also in the middle of this really intense discussion between the two of them and two friends where they're all trying to sort of negotiate some mutual truth, a toy drone with a camera that they that they purchased as a toy flies into the room and knocks a glass of wine over and completely disrupts the whole situation, both producing a resolution and making a resolution impossible. So I don't have a, I don't know that I necessarily have a fully formed thought about what that is, but these little puncturing moments of the iPhone and the drone interfering in this family interaction pushes through, I think, a refusal of intimacy that is happening in this little movie uh, that allows something to happen, that allows the refusal to be ignored or overturned. I think the, so that's the distant answer. The closer answer is something like, um, I think that 
I don't think that there are, I think we always keep secrets. Uh, and this may be more unintentionally self-disclosing than making some more general comment. But I think that there are ways in which if you, I, so relationships have as a part of them a kind of surveillance. Like even if it's not intentional, if you are involved in an intimate relationship with another human being, you tend to know their comings and goings and they yours. And there is frequently some kind of accountability for those comings and goings. So it may not be uh, surveillant in terms of power and control, but it's still surveillant in that you are being watched, you are watching. There is some record outside of yourself of your comings and goings, which is say the mind and being of this other person. Um, but I think that I will always wonder about new ways not even necessarily new ways, deeper ways to know other people and to be known by other people. And if indeed all these surveillance and technologically mediated forms are part of our lives already, then I want to figure out not how to pretend that they're not there or to even pretend that we can refuse them because I don't think we can, but to find a way to use these tools for ourselves in some richer way. Five. Consent is an absence of sufficient or effective resistance to monitoring. Surveillance is active surveillance, such as drones or wiretaps. Ambient surveillance, such as traffic cameras or retail security systems. And data collection, such as big data or other aggregative techniques for handling data and metadata. On first reading, full disclosure for me, of the manifesto, there's something kind of horrifying in the idea of, pub of publicity. Um, I think you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier as well. There's something a little unsettling in the in the idea, and I think this goes off of your intimacy question too, of like people having full access to like uh, something that we talked about uh, in, in reading through, it was like emails, right? Mm -hmm. So like, are your emails now all public or are your text messages all public? Yeah. What, what's interesting uh, in, the, in the horror of publicity of being like exposed is it, it, in some ways, the horror in response to the fan, uh, to the, is publicity a utopian idea? I mean, do you think of it that way in, in the manifesto? I don't I, want to put words into your mouth, so I don't want to say it's utopian if you don't feel like it's yeah, a utopian thing. I, I mean, I think that the, the same part of it that, I mean, this is always the, so the same part of it that felt like maybe the form of it could be a science fiction story is the part right. that feels like, yeah, you could make this a right. utopian, which is always anymore a dystopian story. Right. Um, but I do, but I also think like, I, I, it goes to a, a bigger question, which I was thinking of while you were, while you were asking yours, which is like, why, what do we, what is, what is it that we, I, I, I don't want to live a life ruled by fear. And I think that it is largely fear that you say horror. Right. And I, but I, and I would say that for myself, it's horror, but it's horror based in fear. Like right. I don't, I wouldn't necessarily want everybody to see all that. And yet that is like demonstrably a part of me. Like this is, this is all stuff that I am. So I think that there is in a, a lot of our anxiety about privacy, uh, an anxiety about sort of having to come to grips with who we are. Like do, if you ever secretly suspect that you are a monster, then there is something that exists that, that you understand as evidence to that, that effect. Um, I don't think we would survive something like this. Like, I don't think Publicity. that, yeah, I don't think that, I think 
even as a thought experiment, it's really scary. Like just the, if I just pretend for a moment that, that all the things that I'd forget the things I'd said, just the things that I'd committed to some kind of archivable format, that if those things were all available, I mean, yeah, there's a great fear of refusal of refusal of like the community, I think. I think it seems like part of the horror is, is it reminds me of in my classes when we read, uh, like Judith Butler, right. And there's a certain response that some of the students have, which is to say, like, that is not what I am. I am not that thing. Right. right. So the horror and the response to Judith Butler's theory is like really in some ways the revelation of that is the truth. So I think what's a little fascinating to me as I continue to read through the manifesto is I think part of the horror and the sense of publicity is actually acknowledgement to the, the acknowledgement of some of this already being in place, right? Like some of the hacks that you point to and now um, some of the DNC stuff that just occurred yes. too actually demonstrates how much of this information is actually just already accessible, yes. right? So publicity uh, as the theory in the manifesto is to me, it reminds me of uh, uh, Marx, right? Trying to think that the communist manifesto is just the taking of the bourgeois revolution to its next logical conclusion. To me, the, the publicity is the same thing, right? Privacy is a fantasy because the conditions are not such a, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, where was it here? I'm going to edit all this silence out so I sound really, really, really smart. I can't remember what it is. Essentially, like, privacy is, uh, like, you know, it doesn't hold up anymore, right? Yeah, I, uh, the facts no longer bear it out. Yes. Right. So part of that point is that's why publicity is the next thing. Publicity is what the facts actually bear out. Privacy no longer is bared out by the facts. Uh, so I think part of the horror in the face of publicity is actually the acknowledgement of the facts not bearing privacy out anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, if you're defining privacy as the uh, privacy as uh, quote unquote personal life not not being accessible to other people, right? Yeah. The right to privacy. As opposed to number six is the right to keep things to oneself personal property, one's own body, and to control access, right? Yeah. So, um, like, all of these hacks reveal the extent to which, like, you can't actually keep your personal shit to yourself. Or rather, there is always a possibility that somebody, like, hacks your email account and then releases all the Blackstone review emails that we have, which are like, you know, do you want to meet for dinner this week? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I think it's interesting. The, the, for you, the horror comes from a kind of revolution, uh, a revelation of something about the self. To me, I think the horror comes from the revolution, uh, revelation of something that's already existent systemically, right? Like yes, independent yes. of who we are as monsters or angels. Like the and publicity the as a reason... theory already reveals like privacy doesn't work because of what it we already live work. under. Yes, right. I think that's very true. I think it makes us feel better to imagine it as a thing yeah, to imagine it as a thing that is still a part of our lives. But largely, so I think the reason people say in the world can't read your personal Gmails or the, the Blackstone re review emails is because nobody cares. nobody cares. So that's part of, that's that's one of the things that's kind of freaky and that I think that maybe the manifesto is trying to address. Like, what do we, in this, in this mm. very isolating, isolated world where where interpersonal connection is for a lot of different reasons made more difficult. The, the, nobody cares about a lot of that stuff. What they do care about is stuff that they, what is cared about by different uh, stakeholders is available to them. So the kind of things that happen in your Google searches or in your Gmail that are um, uh, uh, 
the word, aggregatable into some kind that, that helps marketing, that helps basically sell you something. Well, that stuff's already there. It's already, it's already being used and uh, traded back and forth by a variety of systems. And new and more intelligent algorithms are constantly being developed in order to make use of this information that's all already there. So it's this whole sort of artificial intelligence meets behavioral psychology thing that's that's very much part of our world uh, and then we hold on to certain things like my emails I don't want my emails but really the people who would want to read my emails are mostly just people I know and it would be largely out of prurient curiosity and I think they would and then what if they did and then I also could know who read my all of my emails and which ones they read and which ones they lingered longer over and which ones they clicked to first etc and then all this personal, all this aggregatable data is made sort of personally aggregatable to my interests, etc. There's a weird way in which I think that that connects us more. I mean, I think of if you think of one secret, you have like some big secret. Like we frequently know who in our life knows that secret, so that's that we have this infinitely complicated network of like who knows what about us, and I know what about about whom, etc. So we're constantly, I think it's just a larger scale of an information trading that we've been doing for a long time that we can now automate. Six, privacy is being apart from. The right to privacy is the right to keep things to oneself, personal property, one's own body, and to control access. The consent to surveillance by the state and by the practice of ordinary life under capital into which watching is built reveals privacy as obsolete. Perhaps secrets are possible if they are never shared, but secrets seek to be told. Even talking about privacy is a necessarily public act. How would the publicity society differ, differ in term, different uh, from the surveillance society in uh, its operation? Uh, would it uh, implicate the participants in that society as kind of watchmen in a, a de facto surveillance society as well? I mean, I think we would, I, I absolutely think that there would be some group or groups that emerged in that way. I think about the uh, militiamen in along the border between the U.S. and Mexico, these self-proclaimed, Minutemen, sorry, who uh, became a self-proclaimed anti-immigration militia constantly policing this this border between the two countries. I think that there would be those who motivated by law or religious beliefs or other uh, other strongly held philosophies would set themselves to policing and searching and doing some kind of monitoring. I think a lot of people would be just very curious. I think the difference between the publicity society and the surveillance society is that I don't think the publicity society can exist because I think there's no non-hierarchical way to produce what the manifesto might call for. So I don't think that there's a way to decentralize power control and access over this information. And certainly not if you're asking what you likely would be business or government to fund the infrastructure to put this into place because it, it does it would take a lot of money. The surveillance society, I think, has had a lot longer to develop and it has been in its own way an organic outgrowth of how how we've chosen to live uh, and I think that I get angry at commodification and capitalism sometimes but uh, 
but I do nothing to interfere with it in any way whatsoever other than like thoroughly enjoy the the benefits of it like going to see uh I went and saw Ghostbusters the other day and I got beer and popcorn and candy and nachos like I'm a damn that's a real movie <laughs> movie outing you know, I, <laughs> that's legit I see the problems with the system in which I live but I also love certain of the benefits so yeah so I think the I think that the publicity the publicity society is impossible the surveillance society already exists it's come up as a natural outgrowth of uh capitalism and information technology and in general i think how we've wanted to deal with information but have just never been able to on a large scale seven publicity is being with and being known celebrity is the highest form of publicity celebrity is the aspirational state and has replaced personal sovereignty the goal for the individual is not the desire for bodily and spiritual coherence evinced by privacy but to be distributed in an act of shared communal publicity. Given its impossibility, what's the value, benefit, whatever synonym of that terminology you want to use, of articulating it? Given its impossibility, why is it worth producing this? Yeah, good question. So I think this goes back to an earlier question. Another of my interests is drones. And I think part of the reason I'm interested in drones, so there's a lot of reasons I'm interested in both these things, but one of the reasons I'm interested in drones is because I know I'm supposed to think drones are bad. So I know that that the, the position of the platform of belief to which I largely subscribe is that drones are bad. Uh, but I feel very much the way about drones that I do about privacy, which is great. Drones are bad, but they are super duper already here. They're not going anywhere. There's going to be more of them. There's absolutely, maybe this is, I don't even think it's nihilistic and I don't even think it's fatalistic, but I think it's, I think that especially in the academy, there's a lot of railing against things in a sort of pointless way. Like, Okay, so invasions of our privacy are terrible and then the, the government is doing this all the time. But I don't understand the constant need to recapitulate this fact if you can't interrogate it in some way to give new insight or to find a way to actually combat this, di- this diagnosis. And I, I feel that I don't want to be prescriptive, but I want to do something more active than diagnosis and less tyrannical than prescription. So again with drones if drones are here if they're a technology that both in commercial and military applications is going to continue to develop because it's extremely effective regardless of the morality behind it then what do we do with that are there ways to reclaim it from the place we are now rather than to do a lot of uh hand wringing which uh which is so so totally ineffective and i can hear even as i'm saying like this is just uh, obviously a frustration that i'm dealing with in in being a PhD student and but I think even coming out of before being a PhD student I worked in nonprofit animal welfare and I feel very much the same about that that there's a lot of ineffective hand wringing insufficient thinking platform adoption uh, without really taking a look at uh, what are we doing here what is this weird thing that we have about our relationship with animals and domesticating them and having them in the home I love my pets but there's no way that I can think of it as not in some way a perversion but it's here and so we're responsible for them and ditto with drones and ditto with privacy these things are already a mess so rather than 
being really upset that they're a mess what do we do with them the the mess that there is how do, how do we salvage something I double back to something you said earlier you made a distinction between uh, you said paraphrasing <laughs> that uh, we, we know who, we know who has our secrets right so I know person A has this secret or person B has this secret you know my secrets uh, I know way too many of your secrets <laughs> too many the mics are rolling uh, we'll cut this part out <laughs> Uh, okay, <laughs> and so in the publicity in a publicity society, this this arrangement will still be this still be fact of fact kind of human interaction. How do you then? How does the publicity society not in, in with that in mind? How does the publicity society not in turn kind of reinforce the type of privacy in which these things just aren't disclosed to very many people, and the behaviors you t participate in that you know will be accessible to everyone else are kind of uh, muted. So to speak, like you don't do, maybe you don't uh, you know, scratch yourself in the morning, and when you, if you know, like the cameras, are, or cameras are watching you, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so it kind of reifies this idea that there is a, a privacy. There's so many people watching. There's so many people uh, as participants that no one, no one person can view everyone at the same time anyway. So kind of, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I could push more through it as a thought or as a question than that. That kind of within this cacophony that you actually are very private because, like, like you said. You said earlier, like, no one cares about the best number of emails. Yeah, so I had several thoughts. It was it was a very rich question. So um, I think let me let me see if I can think through them real quick. Can you ask the first? Can you can you remember enough of your question to ask me the first part again? Uh, let me see. Uh, so uh, yeah, so you you said earlier that I mean, I, at some point a point with with which I agree that we kind of. Uh, portion out the people who know our secrets everyone doesn't know everything about us so within the within the kind of publicity society this dynamic will, will hold will maintain will continue to be true if you add on to the fact that in a publicity society everyone has access to everyone else's kind of what we used to think of as a private kind of living sphere within the kind of cacophony of everyone having access to everything would a kind of uh, what you think of as privacy actually be kind of reified because you're saying uh, as we said earlier that a lot of people just won't care about your your particular thing. It'd be a very small subset of people who actually care about what Bill's doing, what Eric's doing, what Sean's doing. So, in some ways, you still have a some kind of remnant of privacy, yeah, kind of <laughs> simulacrum of privacy. So, I a couple of thoughts about this. Um, the first thought I had was, if one outcome of the publicity society was to increase the amount of actual face-to-face -face interpersonal communication and individual oral histories so indeed if you sean know a lot of eric's secrets you know his secrets so there's like this sort of in an if we imagine them as like a commodity that's a liability but also i think there's this other version of that where if you imagine that in some way you are the carrier of part of eric's oral history then i think there's a way that that makes you i mean obviously that connects you more. Part of the reason you know many of Eric's secrets are because you're friends and you have some closeness. But also, I think privacy produces this notion of secrets as commodities, as things you can find out. WikiLeaks is a great example of this. So I think while we heroize them in many ways for uh, sharing information that is exactly this kind of like reading your emails and know what you really think about things, there's a way in which they are 
really deeply inscribing the secret as a commodity then. Um, there's not a way that I think you can interpret WikiLeaks as like showing us the oral history of the Democratic National Committee. So that's a very different thing. So if indeed mega publicity means that the only way to actually keep secrets is to tell them to each other, uh, then I think there's something, something really successful in interpersonal intimacy about that. Um, I think though that the other part of your question, um, access to the living sphere, this is part of the thing that I, this is harkening back to one of our earlier bits of discussion, which is this is in place. Like this is partly what it's, it's curated, but this is partly what, and I feel like I'm a hundred years old when I say this, but this is what Facebook is for, or any uh, personal blogs or Twitter or Snapchat it is sort of like a con way of constantly updating uh, your public, even if your public is a limited social sphere, uh, to uh, uh, about what you're doing. So the difference between maybe part of what you're asking and what we do already is that there's a certain amount of voluntariness to this, but I also am not entirely convinced that's the case either, because I think there is a feeling that if you are not participating in these spheres, that you are, even if it's a, a prideful self-exclusion, like I don't use Twitter uh, because it's just silly and ephemeral or whatever, the various good reasons people have for not being on Twitter, you're, it's still exclusion from a community that you are aware that you are excluding yourself from or being excluded from, even if you have made this choice in some positive way. So does your, your ultimate question then, does this in some way reify privacy? I think if the goal, so there's two goals that work in parallel. There's sort of like the stated goal of the manifesto, which is this publicity society, but there's also this, which is the impossible goal, but there's also what I think is the possible goal, which is, are there ways in which this thought experiment is productive for producing some kind of greater human intimacy? And without being technophobic, without being techno-optimistic or technophobic, like I think this is this is a these are two big guiding lights for me that I think that these are the two positions of the good liberal in thinking about technology. And I don't I think that there is those are those are utopian those are both utopian situations. They're just one happens to be the dark side of it, one happens to be the light side of it. But I think that in the way I want to think and live. I want to work with what's possible to be non-nihilistic, to find ways of reclaiming the the stuff that's really a mess and garbagey and that makes it feel like this is a terrible time to be alive in a country that's kind of a mess, uh, and to, to reclaim that and pull something not optimistic but like positive or or reclaimable or continue to engage with the world in some active way and not not just along for the ride. That got a little, that was the real manifesto right there. <laughs> Eight, acquiring and retaining large scale publicity as celebrity is unlikely and as a universal impractical. To deliver on the promise of publicity, it must be made available to all. The democratization of publicity requires a widespread network of surveillance and widespread access to it. I've feel like most of the questions that we developed and I think in some ways the manifesto asked this are about the the speculative vision eight through thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they're so uh like captivating. 
in many ways, the vision that you're outlining there in its impossibility, right? Like you start imagining this impossible thing and you're like, wow, this is crazy, right? And then maybe in some flashes, you get a sense of the, the anti-individual uh, communitarian aspects of this. But I feel like there's a something lingering for me in the vision of, of the contemporary moment that I think it is always possible in discussions about technological use, which is like uh, uneven use, right? So like my grandfather before he died doesn't have a Facebook, doesn't have a Twitter, I think had an email, maybe didn't have an email account, right? I th you kind of mentioned you were getting towards this, I think in the response to the last question. Are we underappreciating the spaces where people have not been incorporated into this already existing uh, like data, big data world. Like, are, are we undervaluing the ways in which like people in their everyday lives because of class positions or because of like the jobs that they have, like th like this to them is like, I don't even understand the, the vision that you guys have. Um, yeah, I think about this all, yeah, absolutely. Are people I think already about this all the time. Do they have privacy because they refuse to participate in these things that are about big data collection? Like. I think, I mean, in many sense? of the cases you're talking about, it's not a refusal so much as I think it wasn't. So this is, I guess there are a couple of parts of this. One, this points to the ways in which there are, it is, there are the, which communities, well, I guess, let me back up, that there are communities who have this life that we're talking about built into them from day one. So from cradle to grave, you are technologized, you are surrounded by uh, these technologies and this kind of archiving. So that's one bit. I think there's another bit, and I think about this a lot, that there there is a way that anthropology will works now already and will continue to work in the future that it's going to be in some way data anthropology. So the people who are archived are going, I mean, those are the records that are going to be right, right. dug through first. Right, right. Uh, census records, you know, will exist, etc. But for the most part, it's going to be you go to the biggest pile of garbage to sift through that first and then as time goes on uh, uh, you get to the rest and there yeah so I think that for a lot of communities who are not uh, in some way included that are either not cradle to gravers so this would include your grandfather or who are not part of uh, uh, either a developed nation or a developed part of a, de right. a developed nation right. yeah. um, who are who are largely going would be excluded from this i think about the publicity society in terms of like the uh the trope of the jungle tribe in the amazon who is like maybe somebody flew over them in an airplane in 1926 and they were cut off and they've been happy to be cut off so what about them i think that it's there are two parts of this one i think that if you could keep this commodified and somebody could make money by putting up an Amazon tribe webcam so you could watch this group of people uh, go about their daily lives and their business, then I think that people would be tuning in left and right to watch these things. I think it's basically a combination of reality TV, which has this whole other aspect that we haven't touched on that is a huge part of the theoretical backbone right. of the manifesto. Right. Um, and nature stuff webcams. About celebrity. What's that? The stuff about celebrity in here? Yes, yes, yeah, about celebrity, about, but also specifically about reality TV, both people who long to be on it and how popular it is as, uh, as, a, as a 
a, a category of show. But so you've got wildlife webcams, you've got nature cams that don't show any living creatures, but just landscapes. You've got city webcams. Um, so I think that the world that has this stuff in it is always looking for new stuff to sift through. Uh, if that was a webcam that showed some part of the world that we never saw or that was cut off, or if it was access to people's Gmails where you could do keyword searches, uh, you could look for your name in Gmail and emails uh, from around the world, etc. I think that absolutely people would be engaging in this including a lot of people like myself who would be railing against it. Like, this is, I think, the, the, the great paradox. Like, I think that that would be terrible. But also, if I had it available to, my, to me and I was at home and nobody was watching and there was no record that I was going to, in fact, access this information, would I do it or not? I mean, this is like a test of personal character. Right. But I think the strong likelihood is that I would, at the very least, search for my name. Who's talking about me? Who loves me? Would the fear be that everyone's doing it and that no one's doing it? Yeah, that's a good. That's a great question. I, I think that. So I think there's like a hierarchy of fears for this. I think like the least fearful, most preferred thing is that a few people are talking about me and they all say really nice things about me. <laughs> um, but there are other le levels like finding out. So one huge anxiety that I have is uh, is of self deception. So. I have this terror of like finding out that somebody that I think is like a, a great friend actually thinks that I'm a real jerk. And like that's the kind of that stuff is for me anyway, that stuff is heartbreaking. But there are certain realities like the chances are good that each of us has one friend that we really like that maybe actually doesn't like us very much. But, but I think I understand that. That's my paranoia. That's understandable. But here's the thing that I think is like. Sean and I have talked, I have like a, an anti-data, maybe eventually we'll do our anti-data podcast. Like, even if you found an email or one of your friends who you think is like really great and you're like, this is a good friendship, wrote something like, Bill sucks, right? Yeah. That seems like it more, in some ways has less to do with you and more has to do with that person and potentially the audience that they're communicating with. So I feel like there is a way in which the data never can exhaust the truth, right? Like no matter how much data, this is the thing about the publicity society too, right? That you can have access to all of this data in some ways still can tell you nothing, right? It potentially still doesn't reveal anything. Uh, it reveals some things. Uh, it reveals something about the like triangulated it can relationship between- answer the right between, kinds of questions, yeah. Right, um, but I think it can give you false answers to yes. poorly developed yes. questions also, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that. Just the idea that like, just because you see an email or just because you see a text message where somebody has said something, in some ways that under describes the situation. Uh, like, where was that person when they said this? Yes, right. Who were they what's talking the to? What's the context? What's the history behind these things? Which yeah. like any piece of data would be incapable of, of, uh, of really expressing, right? I think even if you had an accumulated data pool, it still would be missing something, right? Does this make sense? This, yeah. is my, this is my anti-data. You've heard this before. Yeah, so I think that uh, there's two questions. and I'm going to answer the question that you didn't ask first, which is I think that part of what is interesting about the first, that that's this, this situation where we're searching emails and, you know, like finding these, this new information, I think reveals to me how much we curate our relationships without even meaning to. Like, 
I don't say all the things that I think about every friend that I have all the time. Mm. But what a fascinating relationship. And, like, I, I, would it make it a closer relationship if, like, if we did share this information? Where, like, when you're grouching, you're like, you know what? I, there's this thing that, that, that he does when we're hanging out sometimes. And it, you know, it, like, it is just this part of him that I, that I just can't stand. Like everything else about my friend, I really like, but this little thing, this like little thing, this drives me bananas. Like, what if we knew those things, like actually communicated those things and didn't so highly curate our interactions? I think that mm. we all value honesty and whatnot, but also like, there's a great experience when you've had like a really close, honest moment of interaction with somebody. Like that's really cool, but also it reveals like how rare and non-typical sure. intense moments of vulnerability and honesty are. So I think that there's a way in which like being able to see this momentary thought that's actually not about me and completely divorced from context and actually about the other person and who their audience is does actually like create more community if we all sort of like see and if we are part of that what happens there like if we are if we just sort of live a little more honestly which terrifies me like i don't want to do that but uh, i i would be up for it if like we all whoever we all is agreed to just start doing it at the same time but it's a it's i mean it feels impossible to do as an individual person data as far as being anti-data and like there are I, yes, I think that there are always ways in which data is insufficient, but there are ways in which it does more than we could ever do. So, like, you can actually discover in information about uh, health in communities through aggregating data, or even about your own body if you say where your eye watch all the time for 50 years, then you had, there is suddenly is there's information about your body that's available to you that was not available without this the existence of data without this technological mediation. So I think that I think that it that there are all these insufficiencies, but I think that it also it is in certain ways a kind of like communal prosthetic. So it it's something that that we are attaching to and using to extend our reach into what it is to be a person or a community or some kind of group in ways that we absolutely can't do without uh, massive aggregatable quantities of data, hmm. which is again like this is why this is part of like this this self interrogation, which is one of the main things this I want this to do. Like, why do I think the things? Why do I think the things that I think they're bad? Why do I think they're bad? And what else is maybe going on in them that I that I don't see? Right. And I don't know where that impulse comes from. It's it. I think it's a little bit. It's a little bit ornery and just kind of like wanting to it's a 20 year old version of me wanting to poke at a 40 year old version of me and say like are you so sure about the things that you think mm. like the things that you think you believe your platforms of self-understanding nine the widespread network is in place active surveillance systems can be tasked with persistent monitoring and archiving seeing listening and remembering one can be public in each moment without temporal limitation backward and forward, stored forever. A couple of items or a couple of uh, threads in the conversation are mediation. Mm -hmm. Like how does, how would access to everyone's, everyone else's uh, lives essentially, how does their access, how is that access mediated by technology and also by your inability to know, to know yourself, correct? So to speak to your point about having a fear that your friends will secretly hate you, 
I now, I now wish I had not said that on a live microphone, but it is an interesting. It's a, an interesting, yeah. Yeah. How would your obviously mediate relationship to your friends be imp be impacted by uh, you and also their mediate relationship to you and your and all all y'all's and all of ours inability to kind of know ourselves, quote unquote, right? Kind of know what makes us tick on a very kind of unconscious level. How does that, how would that function in a publicity society? Because you, you couldn't actually, or could you, get to the, the, the truth, the kind of capital T truth of any relation, relationship or what makes a person tick? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think in general, that's not, I th so, okay. So I, I guess I would back up and say that maybe the, so the, I think your question is maybe a teleological question where I would say it's not, a teleological question so it's I don't think that there is I don't think that there is a point where you know yourself so it's the I think that part of this is feeling like is wanting to push my own this is a corny way of saying it but wanting to push my own process a little bit and like there's just always these it in the way that any text is inexhaustible I think we in many ways are an inexhaustible text to ourselves and part of your job is to constantly be understanding and analyzing and critiquing and refining so I don't think it's like some it's not a progress narrative thing and it's not a hyper Nietzsche and hyper efficiency thing but it is like uh, I want myself to be a little better tomorrow than I was today and I want the people around me to want that for themselves and to want that for the world too so this maybe is kind of a utopian story but I don't think there's like a getting there I think there's like if you have 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years to fill uh, some kind of like project of of figuring out I, I guess I always feel like I'm behind the game because at 40 I now understand a little bit more of myself as a as as I was when I was a 20 year old and I think being able to understand that helps me just think more productively about the kind of world that I as a 40 year old person might have the power to influence and make or and it's it is always like the might have the power equates to already has the power or already has the potential um I'm like at the peak of 21st century privilege I, I mean I don't come from money but like I'm a white middle class dude in the United States of America, so like I've already I've got a bunch of oomph behind me that I'm not really using for anything in particular. So some kind of the the a project of self betterment I think it becomes kind of fruitless without some kind of aim to do something for your world. That I'm so sorry about that. It was so hallmarky. Ten. The widespread network, however, requires more robust and autonomous connections. Visual and listening technologies from traffic cameras to wiretaps to gunshot monitors to CCTV systems must be interconnected or connected to centralized hubs. As new observation and surveillance technologies become available, they must also be tied into existing systems and networks. Substantial hardware upgrades will be necessary for this. Full inclusion of all data sources will take time, perhaps a generation. In the publicity society, how is access to data mediated, right? Who stores it? Who archives it? Is this the, is this the state? Because in some way, yeah, this it has is a vision of, of a kind of the, the right, the, a larger, basically, 
then the vision is we need a larger public infrastructure uh, investment, right? To say that it's a corporation, you run into all these other problems with like, what does it mean to have privatizing like, the data? And right, and it goes against the whole system in the first place. Sure. This so, is yeah, this is part of the impossibility I think of publicity society is that there is no like, and this is I think part of what the manifesto is also trying to diagnose is that you can't even think around this. Like you can't even. Like a science fiction story is not is not is partly part of the reason that it's not the right form for it is that it still becomes allegorical and it just does the same work where you in fact I lack sufficient imagination I think most of us who live in the world that uh, we live in right now I mean like our sort of like Western twenty first century middle class world. Uh, you, there's no, I don't even, where do you even begin? Like, what are the building blocks of imagination basic enough to even produce a structure in which this a decentralized, shared, post-scarcity economy is going to, is going to make this happen? Um, it's, yeah, this is, uh, this is a Star Trek episode. Yeah, I think you try to get at it with the ideas about method, systems and methods of access must be open source, but in some ways what that very cleverly does is it doesn't say anything about storage right so yeah. methods of access is about like how do you get to this yes, stuff right. but that doesn't say anything about how the where the stuff is through which you open source get to it right does that make sense yeah so there's a huge material problem here in that like i talk about infrastructure but it's really like it's almost entirely conceptual because we're talking not just about where do you archive like where does the data farm the very large uh, energy consuming data right. farm live and who runs it and who owns it but also like all these cameras that we're talking about and, and networking the bodega security camera to as part of the ambient surveillance network to all the other bodega security cameras to all the other ATM cameras and so on um, huge material problem like I, do, I can't even imagine where you'd begin to to get that together but then that's really the the bigger question than the material problem is who is the commodity problem like who owns this stuff and no matter what like uh, so like as a as just as an, a sub thought experiment so like maybe there's uh an offshoot of the united nations that is put in charge of running this or each country puts together uh, uh, some kind of NGO that has a couple of representatives and all these representatives from every country do it, et cetera. But then of course you have the problem, the selection process, if it's the UN, who are member nations, who are not member nations. Do you have a, an information council that's made up of the actual, like the UN Security Council of the most powerful information nations in the world? Does that change if it's not say who the Security Council actually is? Because um, there are, uh, South Korea, for example, has pretty astonishing and pervasive technological saturation, but much more so than the U.S. So then do they, how does that work, etc.? There's no way of conceiving of this in the sort of decentralized way that it would have to work. But even that, I think, is part of its impossibility. So it's imagining an utterly decentralized system mm -hmm. in a world that I'm saying already exists, but that is a product of hyper centralization and governments and private business 11 widespread access to surveillance information must be guaranteed all data from networked surveillance technologies must be made available to the people at large 
In the contemporary technological moment, the internet is the most obvious access point. Is publicity, as it's outlined here, the, you know, like, there's always the question of what's the vehicle through which we get beyond capital? Or what's the vehicle through which we get beyond the state as a, as a form, right? I can't tell if publicity is the thing, the, like, the guiding impossibility that drives us outside of the things that exist now, or if it imagines, if there is like a kind of gap that has to take place, right? So then like, there's still more work that the state and capital need to do to build this up. And then we finally get to like, right, the eventual leap that's gonna have to happen. And after the leap, that's when we get to, to publicity, right? I think I, I'm caught between those two, two visions, publicity as the vehicle or publicity as the destination. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess it's, it's maybe a little bit of a Mobius strip um, or a, an, uh, if a Mobius strip could have three sides that are that are running into each other, so one is is uh, publicity as telos, like this is where we want to end up. Right. One, another side about. is publicity as motivation, and then on on the third side is state and capital, because I think that that it's this is maybe this manifesto is suggesting. Uh, I think I'm saying something I just said, but it's suggesting as a solu suggesting a solution that emerges out of a system that is not the system that it is trying to be the solution for, which means it's it, that they aren't going to be able to to, to to talk to each other because the the messed up world that has produced this privacy problem uh, is not going to be solved by laying over a different world on top of it. So you describe this as a gap, like, and I would. This is sort of like the, the missing transition between one state to another, which over here would then I say would would show publicity as the hopeful destination. And but over here, I think publicity is the existing reality. So in a certain way, mm -hmm. it, it is as though maybe the ideal world that the manifesto imagines is a sort of version of. I mean, it obviously is a version of what we're doing right now carried to some kind of extreme, but I think it's different than publicity as the destination over here. Yeah, I don't know. That's it was an unsatisfying answer. But I think ultimately they it is all impossible because it's it it does I, I guess I just no longer think there's a, this is a, again like drones or um, privacy or animal welfare. Like there's no getting away from the problem. Like there's not a the, there's not a problem to solve. The problem is the dynamic engine of our action and imagining that there's some solution or some th place where this is no longer a problem is, I think, foolish and impossible. But I think finding new ways to think about an existing situation, uh, so if we in fact are not getting out of state and capital, then what are we gonna do with the mess that's already here? Mm. You know, you can build uh, pretty good bricks out of camel shit. So if all you have is camel shit, then you should probably try and build some bricks. And I think we have more than just camel shit. So I think we're doing okay. Talk about all kinds of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it is a mess, but I think even understanding, and it's not even talking about like tearing capitalism down with its own tools. Like I don't have the I don't have the revolutionary imagination that I used to have. But I do think that there is still something, there is still something to be done 
just by saying like, look, this is where we are on the ground right now today. I don't think we can get out of capital, but I do think that there have to be ways to use all the things that emerge from it in, and I think part of it is just about being more creative and I, not just not just art making, although I think art making is a huge part of it, but just trying to figure out how to be more creative with all the weird, creepy byproducts of the world that we live in. And uh, that is, that's a, a, a among the many threads that I think produce this manifesto. That's one, like if this is, if this is this garbage, hyper-publicized world that's like somewhere between commodification of information and reality TV as uh, an optimal state for the ordinary person, then what kind of like creative imagining and provocation can be pulled out of this morass to to have some kind of conversation that leads to even tiny action in some way 12. all systems and methods of access must be open source all surveillance and related information will be available to everyone at all times refinements to the system from the outside must always be permitted no regulation can be placed on system use. Publicity must be guaranteed for all persons. I want to go back to the very beginning. And I'm just going to read the question I wrote out because I was very clever with my thought. That was really clever. This is the human rights question. Um, number one in the manifesto says publicity, not privacy, must be a human right. Uh, I don't need to read from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but it, Article 12 makes privacy. Will you go ahead and read it? Rights. You have yeah. to read it into the court record. Uh, <laughs> sure. Article 12 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states, No one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honor and reputation. Important. Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. So to me, uh, just because like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is an easy punching bag in some ways, because it's a liberal document. Uh, like through and through it both wants to affirm state uh, sovereignty and individual sovereignty like which in some ways you i don't know yeah can't. it's a good liberal can't. document yeah uh so to me one of the things i think is interesting here is it the universal declaration of human rights thinks that privacy is a human right you want to get rid of privacy or the, the manifesto argues sure. for getting rid of privacy or more than getting rid of it saying it's not even here anymore Right. So there's nothing yes. to get rid of. It's yes. gone. Yes. Why maintain the category of human rights? Why don't we get rid of human rights? P privacy is gone. Privacy in, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is one of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Why do we want to maintain the category of human rights? That's the question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Why do we? So if I were a figure of any kind of political interest, this is not a question that I would answer because there's no... All answers to this question are terrible in some way. Um, so I think that you're the. It would be hard to not question the fundamental notion of the document itself. So there are a couple of things that I've been interested in lately. There was uh, some bill put in front of the EU to. I'm going to have to shorthand this greatly because I don't remember a lot of it to recognize this category of electronic persons and this was less about uh, giving rights to robots and more about sort of setting up some sets of responsibility both legal and financial for the things that 
uh, robot or an electronic person might do, which is basically like giving in some ways like giving them a social security account. But it's really some combination, somewhere between a social security account and uh, uh, car insurance. So this it seems suddenly like there are all these ways as a person who did a lot of animal study stuff before some of this technology stuff that I'm doing now like the category of what kind of life gets to count and for what is like something that a lot of people have been thinking about for a long time. So the very question of human rights, I've, I'm of two minds about this. So I'm one of the hyper practical, like if we need some kind of boneheaded document, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to use as an accountability tool that is in some way mutually agreed upon by a variety of state powers to hold uh, rogue state powers or those who are violating this accountable, um, while also frequently ignoring various human rights abuses in their own countries, then it's probably doing some good that it exists. And it's, a, I think, a reasonable reflection of a way that that a large chunk of the world was thinking at a point in time that said this is actually a thing that maybe we need to say out loud. And like all things, when you get a whole bunch of governments to say them out loud, it just is like this watered down sloppy mess at the end. So I think, but it, I think it does some good. On the other hand, I think there is just this general weird way, and I think this in some way relates to all the things we've been talking about, that, uh, that trying to wrap our heads around the kinds of life that we're responsible to and for uh, in our brief little lifespan is a lot, and I think bears a lot more attention. So some kind of thing that, so in my, maybe the next manifesto that should be written, not by me, but by someone else would be uh, uh, a manifesto on the rights of life uh, and what what that might mean to say like that, that life in general may have some kind of, of, of right but even like the notion of right in that i'm i feel better about the notion of life than i do about the notion of of a right at that point um yeah i mean i i i frequently am not sure if i'm a humanist or an anti-humanist I mean, why do you think you struggle with those why the uncertainty because I think that there's a, a silly way we have of privileging categories of life, both within species and outside of species. Um, and I think about this a lot recent, this is just with, with robots, not what is interesting to me about robots is not that they actually might become self-aware. And then we've got this, this weird manufactured slave class that we've produced that we suddenly have to be responsible for. Um, but the fact that we feel things about them. So when C-3PO gets his arm torn off, like that is in some ways a dramatic and difficult moment for the viewer because you are feeling something for this robot, despite the fact that all the rhetoric for us in fictional tropes is that robots don't like don't feel anything. So it's this constant hmm. tension between we should care about robots because they're all going to be turned into little boys like Pinocchio and we don't have to care about them. Don't forget, you shouldn't care about them. They're only machines, etc. Um, but they are still a place where we put that impulse of care and empathy. Um, so does publicity in some way helps help like produce greater awareness of other lives? If it does that, I think then it is doing something more for this other kind of declaration of responsibility to life that I would that I can imagine imagining. So next, how this 
the notion of what we what counts as life in turn how it uh, speaks to the publicity society with like the the eye of the camera there's some way you can anthropomorphize that right mm. now, is that I mean in some way it is as a participant in the in the publicity society but it's, mm. it's also not being watched it's not it's a viewer but not a watcher so I mean how, how does this notion of categories of life speak to how the publicity society operates yeah that's a great question I think that that is one of the core questions that I that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about in all these different subjects is what difference does bi-directionality and unidirectionality make in in a relationship like can you even call a unidirectional uh, relationship a relationship um, and I so here's an unsatisfying final answer to your question I have a strong intuition that uh, I don't feel like I can back up yet that unidirectional relationships are in some way a relationship I don't I don't hold with speculative realism or that objects have their own existence in terms of like being but I do think that whether it's uh, say a toy robot seal that they give to kids in hospitals to make them feel better which is a, a thing like that response to touch or uh, a video camera I I don't think that's a non-existent relation and I think that there's a way in which even my relation to either of you is in some way still largely just a relation with myself like I'm totally trapped in here I have a lot of information from you from your facial expressions and how you hold your bodies and the words you say etc but still like I a large to a large extent like most of the being that you have for me I put there because I'm trying to understand who you are and I'm trying to get the version of you that I project on you as close as possible to what I understand you understand the version of yourself to be I think some people would say that's because there's a there there you are already there as a thing um, but we a lot of people have written about this we connect to fictional characters in what feel like very real ways and there's not even a there necessarily there or we connect with pets and there's no real access to the dogness or the catness of the dog or cat uh, other than just sort of what we sort of roughly and sloppily try to understand. So I have to wonder if there are other examples of this, other limit cases that we could use to push on to in some way expand our understanding of, of what our relation with the world is. Because I, I don't, the world is dynamic. I think it would be hard to argue that we don't have a relationship with the world, whatever we want to call that. But it is an entirely unidirectional relationship because the the world that we understand ourselves having a relation to, in fact, is too big. We understand it as too big to have a bidirectional relationship. So we have these already complex unidirectional relationships, and I think so. With publicity, whether it's the other or a video camera or a toy robot or whatever it is. The fact that you can put some kind of care on it means, I think, that there is some kind of relation, which means then that we have some kind of responsibility to it, if but for ourselves and our own understanding of ourselves. I think we're going to wrap up. It's a very long conversation, a good long conversation. Bill, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for publishing my 
odd little piece of writing. It was our pleasure. Uh, should we do the the wrap up routine? Yeah, it sounds good. What's uh, what's the Facebook, Sean? Is a uh, Blackstone Review R E V I E W. I spelled it because uh, you'll know coming up pretty soon. Yep. Yeah, uh, the Twitter is at Blackstone Review R E V U E. Yeah. Because there are limitations on characters on Twitter. Oh uh, yeah. Ridiculous. Uh, website theblackstonereview.com that's where you can find Bill's awesome manifesto uh, we just put up our third issue so go check it out and read some good stuff see you next time Sean see you Eric see bye you, Bill. Bill bye guys <laughs> 13 we are all already watching and being watched under privacy the individual is kept apart under publicity the individual becomes apart the anti-communitarian intersection of capital and state that insists on privacy can be disrupted by the intersection of individual and community in publicity.